0: Well, good morning. Thanks for having me back. I guess I didn't bomb the last one, so thank you. (laughs) So a few years ago, my wife and I took this trip to Thailand, Phuket, Thailand. So it's the southern part of the country, this beautiful tropical place. A lot of people vacation there. High touristy place. It's actually one of the best places in the world to go snorkeling. So my wife and I wanted to take full advantage, got our snorkeling gear. A couple hours later on this boat ride, we arrived at this secluded area of the island people in their various boats were getting off getting into the water quick background of my wife though she was this all-star water polo player in high school did lifeguarding during the summer so she's relatively comfortable in the water me on the other hand not so much you know i grew up in east l.a i don't even, i don't even remember even seeing, seeing water too much growing up but but i did get in so she's catching the sights. She's swimming. It's a beautiful, immaculate place, and I stay relatively close to the boat. And I'm just swimming there, stationary, like driftwood. <laughs> Finally, she comes up to me. She's like, "Honey, well, what are you doing? Like, man, this place is beautiful. Why don't you check this place out? What, what are you doing?" And I said, "Well, I'm I'm the lookout. I'm looking out." <laughs> she's like, what are, "What are you looking out for?" I said, "I'm looking out for sharks." Well, what else do I be looking out for? Sharks. And as soon as I said that, I could just feel her roll her eyes at me through her snorkeling goggles. And off she went to enjoy um, the sights. You know, funny thing when people find that about me, one of the first things people start saying is it's like, hey, start quoting statistics. Like, hey, you know, it's more likely you die in a car accident than get eaten by a shark. Or you're more likely to get hit by lightning and say get eaten by a shark. I said, you know what? When there's a shark sighting in a beach, they shut down the beach, all right? When there's a little lightning outside, nobody cares, okay? So let's let's get that straight. Let's get that straight. You know, so I wasn't about to risk sightseeing um, just just you know potentially getting eaten by a shark. But I do remember that day vividly. And just behind me were just these beautiful mountains. Remember the weather? The sun was. Shining through the clouds, it was warm weather, the, the water was crystal clear, you could see right through it, not to mention the, the non-shark aquatic life that was, that was absolutely beautiful. And because of that fear, I wasn't really able to enjoy basically paradise. I wasn't able to enjoy it because I was a slave to that fear. Um, I wasn't able to, to really appreciate everything that was there. It was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for, for a lot of people. See, and death can be like that shark. We get so preoccupied by it that we miss um, things that God has for us. So we come to a time where the author of Hebrews addresses a religious community facing persecution, imprisonment under a great deal of distress. And as a result of this mounting external pressure, some some Christians had even walked away from the faith and committed apostasy. And out of these fears, there came this uncertainty like, hey, is Christ's sacrifice really enough? Am I really his? If I endure all the way to the end, am I really his? And... During this Advent season, as we celebrate the birth of Christ, let us remember, he was born to deliver us from death. And today in our passage, we're going to see that Jesus took on humanity to destroy the power of death, to liberate us from the fear of death by making us holy through the forgiveness of sins. He became human in in order to die, die on the cross, and deliver us and free us from lifelong slavery. Would you turn your Bibles, please, to Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 2. And starting in verse 14: Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So here in verse 14, we see that we are human, that we share in flesh and blood. And since we are human, therefore Christ became human. Fully and completely human. Why do I say fully and completely human? Because it clearly states he's human in every sense of the word. And there's a tendency in us to not believe Christ's full humanity But see, we have solidarity with him in that he was human in every regard. He was born. He was dependent on human parents. He grew tired and hungry. He needed sleep and rest. He was overjoyed when people came to faith. He had compassion on the poor. He got angry when they were exploited. He felt anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane. He mourned the loss of loved ones in the full gambit of human emotion he felt them all. This is rich Christology and throughout church history, there have been many heresies that come up to deny his true humanity, but he is fully and completely human. So that begs the question, if he's fully and completely human, does that mean he is also sinful? No. 1 Peter 2.22, he says, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. See, this idea of sinfulness being a part of our humanness is true in one sense, in that we are in Adam when we were born. And because of Adam and his rebellion in the garden, we have inherited that sin nature. But Jesus isn't from Adam. Through the miraculous birth, through the Virgin Mary, he has become our second Adam. And Paul writes in Romans 5, 17, for if, because of one man's trespass, Death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. See, Jesus reflects humanity perfectly. And he is the radiance of the glory of God and the perfect imprint of his nature. So here, the rest of verse 14, when he says, he himself likewise partook of the same things The next part we see why he became human, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So Jesus became human in order to die and in his death nullify the power of death. So if his aim was to free humans, he must first become human and through his death served as a substitute of our place under God's wrath. And how exactly does his death do that? How does the death of Christ conquer the power of the devil and the fear of death? Well, let's skip to verse 17. In verse 17 it says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So here under the Old Testament sacrificial system, animal sacrifice only covered sins. But Jesus' atonement completely took away sins. See, because because sin had to be dealt with. God's not indifferent to sin. That would make him unjust and unholy. Was the blood of Christ enough? Yes, for if the blood of goats and bulls sanctify the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ and this word here in verse 17, propitiation, simply means turning aside God's wrath. So if we're truly in Christ and receive the free gift of his righteousness, his judgment is satisfied. His anger has been appeased. And now we have a relationship with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, a right standing with him. So you see, the only power the devil really has is unrepentant, unforgiven sin, And that he is called the accuser in Revelation chapter 12. And what is, exactly is he accusing of? Well, sin. See, Junior sinned and he deserved death and damnation. And he's completely right. Thus the power, that's, that's where his power lies in the accuracy of that statement. That sin needed to be dealt with. But through the blood of Christ, the devil's power of condemnation has been destroyed. And see so here, this word destroyed here in verse 14, it's an interesting word because it falls just short of complete annihilation, but it, rather it renders ineffective his power. And here we have this realized and unrealized elements of eschatology held in tension, the already and not yet, the already that yes, the devil is defeated, but not fully, not yet, not until the end of the age. Because we still endure physical death. And the process of dying is a reality. 1 First, First Corinthians 15:26 says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. It's not completely defeated yet. You know, I think today in our Western modern society, I think most people don't really go around uh, fearing death. They spend time keeping themselves busy, busy to make that fear a little bit more tolerable. So they distract themselves with mindless leisure, recreation, entertainment, or just career pursuits just so they don't have to think about it. So we don't have to think about it. Some would even deny that there's another life. Hey, this is the only life we have. Let us eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. And we indulge ourselves in just complete debauchery. But there is another life. You know, I think Woody Allen was the guy who joked it, and he said, Hey, you know, I'm not afraid of dying. I just don't want to be there when it happens. <laughs> and I think the humor in that joke acknowledges the inescapable reality that everybody will face death one day. The unavoidable truth that dying is a reality. So death, therefore, becomes a specter to be avoided, a master to which we are enslaved, an enemy at which we rage, and no matter how confident. We may be over human ability, our limitation concerning death is undeniable, and our meeting with it inevitable. In Robert Neal's book, "The Art of Dying," he lists three aspects of the fear of death. And the first one is the loss of mastery, meaning we lose control. We lose control of our body, the environment, time. time in which we once had abundance now seems fleeting as we get older. And those things that used to serve us now gets inverted and they become our masters. You know, I remember when I was a teenager, I'd go to Costco with my mom and I was just like, hey, I want to eat this, I'm going to eat this, and put it in the cart, go home and eat it. It was fine. I remember when I was a kid, I would eat all of my Halloween candy that night. <laughs> Next morning, it felt fine. It felt fine. You know, as I got older and now I have my own family, I go to the doctor and I get these annual checkups and, and the doctor's like, hey, your, your cholesterol, it's, it's a little high. Following year, hey, you know, it's getting a little higher. The next year went down, and I'm like, yeah, all right. But then I celebrated and went back up. <laughs> and finally, my doctor, I got a phone call, and he never calls me, I get a phone call, and an email and he's like, hey, look, you need to take some meds, or you're about to die, all right? I mean, this is getting pretty serious. And I was like, what, what, Really? Never had to worry about stuff like that before. Now I go to Costco with my wife. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I want to eat this. My wife will grab it, start reading the food label. Look at me. You ain't eating this. (laughs) This is going to kill you. It's like, man, I got to watch what I eat now. It's a sad reality for me. And on a more serious note, I remember my, my grandma going through Alzheimer's. And I uh, had a lot of pleasant childhood memories with her. And, you know, I was around in my 20s and I remember visiting her and she didn't know who I was. And to see my family take care of her the way they did, it, it, was, it was beautiful the way they did, but also bathing her and, and, and feeding her and putting her in her bed, getting her back up and just essentially doing everything for her. She was there, but she wasn't there. And it was a hard reality for me to accept that, oh, yeah, it was sobering reality that, yeah, we're, we're all dying. It's a cold reality. Number two, he talks about the fear of incompleteness. Hey, at the end of my life, it's like, whoa, did I really accomplish much? Did I, did I leave a mark Will people remember me? How are my relationships? Are there relationships left unreconciled? Are there things left unsaid, left undone? Have I really done enough in my life? And then three, the separation of loved ones, loved ones. Again, it's a cold reality that if we haven't yet lost loved ones, we will. It's a cold truth. And imagine when Jesus first died and the disciples here had this expectation, yeah, you can restore the the kingdom, nation of Israel. It's going to be great for him to die this weak and disgraceful death the disciples were in despair and imagined the disappointment. Like, whoa, he, he, was, he was the Messiah. He was, he was the coming king. What happened? Because death seems to have the last word. But it doesn't. I'd like to add a fourth one. And this is judgment of God. Fear of being judged by God. And I think if people really sat down and thought about it, That's an inevitable fact that we're all gonna have to answer to a holy and just God. Which pales in comparison to the other three. Here we have in verse 15 that Jesus came to deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. We're a slave to all these fears. And being freed to being freed that kind of slavery is an awakening of the soul. So we're freed from a, from a world of denial. We don't have to deny these things, but we could face them. We don't have to distract ourselves with mindless entertainment or pursue vanity. We don't have to fear the unknown because God has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. So if we're alleviated from all these fears, then we could boldly proclaim the gospel. If I'm truly free from all these fears, all my excuses for our, my lack of personal evangelism is out the window. Oh man, I, don't, I really want to risk the relationship and you know start sharing the gospel. Or oh man, I'm worried about what other people think of me. No, I don't, I'm not scared of dying. So I'm going to share the gospel. Care what people think. But that doesn't. Mean that we still don't have some trepidations at the idea of our own death, that we still endure the process of dying, and there's some apprehension or even some sense of dread and anxiety among Christians when they're at death's doorstep. And I know some seasoned Christians who've walked with the Lord faithfully for decades who have a little anxiety. It's hard to wrap your mind around eternity. Man, what's that like? All these years I've been following Jesus, I'm going to see him face to face. That's a little nerve-wracking. Like, think about it. Sure, it will be glorious, but man, that whole process. But we're not enslaved to that fear. If anything, it gives us hope. So we do not lose heart, though our outward self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. You know, that reminds me of a story of my uncle. You know, my family. Everybody says, hey, every family has this crazy uncle, and my family wasn't an exception to that. My uh, mother was one of seven kids. She had five brothers and a sister, and Uncle Paul was the youngest of the boys, right? And he was extremely dysfunctional. Um, he was an alcoholic, really gripped his life, really a huge vice in his life, and he didn't know how to have relationships. He never married and never had kids and, and, and it never could hold down a job, uh, and nobody liked him. He was just a terrible person, you know, and we were pawning him off to different family members because we couldn't stand him anymore. It's like, hey, a couple months, like, hey, go stay with so-and-so. Hey, he's got to come back to you because we can't stand him anymore. And, and I remember uh, he used to pick on me when I was a kid, me and my sister, and he, he mistreated us, said horrible things. Threatened us. You know, and as I got older and I became a teenager, I actually got into fist fights with him. Fist fights. He came at me one night with a knife. You know, I'm not making that up. Finally, he goes to stay with relatives in Thailand. And I was like, man, good riddance. Halfway across the world, man, that's that's not far enough. And, you know, I remember years goes by, and, and my mom gets a phone call. My mom gets a phone call, and she says, hey, Uncle Paul... He has cancer and he only has days to live, they said. And as I'm hearing this information, my, my mom's literally walking out the door. And say, hey, make sure you water my plants. And she gets out the door and gets on the first flight to Thailand. And, you know, the few of you who knew my mother, none, none of this surprises you. She flies all the way to Thailand. She sits my uncle down and shares the gospel with him. Shares the gospel with him. And say, hey, you need to hear the gospel. She calls me while she's there and says, hey, Uncle Paul, he accepted Jesus is his Lord and Savior. And you know what? My initial thought was, man, I I hope it's sincere. I mean, you live this terrible, wicked life your entire life, and now death is in front of you. A lot of people get religious. A lot of people get religious. I I don't know. I pray and hope that it's sincere. Um, But a lot of people get religious in that situation. So there's no way to know for certain. But then something miraculous happened. He didn't live just a few days. He lived over a year. And it so happened that it coincided with my mission trip to to Thailand up north in in Chiang Mai with Tim Dinkins. And after we were done there, flew down to Bangkok to make sure I visited my uncle. My mom met us up there. And we went to this uh, Christian church in Bangkok. We're sitting in service. And he was sitting in the back and after service, I went up to him. I was like, hey, Uncle Paul, how you doing? How you doing? And I went, and I remember hugging him. And I remember vividly just feeling his bones and just how frail and brittle he was. At that moment, I just thought, man, this person, just, Satan just robbed this person of his life. You know, we pulled back, and, and I looked, in it, and he looks at me, and he, and he just says, hey, man, praise God. Do you have any idea the words, those words coming out of that man was an absolute miracle? You know, he walks away and I go in the corner of the church and I just start sobbing. Just start sobbing. I thought of all the years of enmity we had between each other and all the fights we had. And I hated that man. I grew up hating that man. And here I am seeing him dying basically. You know, during that time, my, my mom's like, oh, hey, you know, my son's come down, share with the youth group, encourage him, blah, 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 blah. And they're sobbing in the corner, apparently oblivious to her, you know, and I'm trying to wrap my mind around the whole situation. And as I go down and I try to share with the youth group there at that church, I kept asking, hey, how's, how's my uncle Paul, how's he been doing this, this past year? And i like, oh, Paul, yeah, he's been here every week of the past year. Oh, and he he reads his Bible every day. You know, and I try to share with the youth group of who that man was. Like, no, no, not Paul. Really? used to do what? I was like, yeah. That's the power of God. So my mom and I, we fly back to the States a couple months later. I remember my mom on the phone with him and and I overheard the conversation and, and she sees me and like, hey, Uncle Paul wants to talk to you. I think this is really it this time. I remember getting on the phone with him and hearing the fear in his voice. Like, hey, man, I'm, this is it. Like, I'm about to die. And Does Christ really have me? And... I kept trying to speak truth into his life and to say, yeah, you, you have faith in Jesus. You don't have to be afraid. That You're going to be in glory pretty soon. And you're going to have a relationship with him forever. Nothing you did back then mattered. And I told him I would pray for him. And I said I loved him. And that was the only time I ever said that. And sure enough... That was uh, my last conversation with him. Uh, He died shortly after. Now look at his life. And I think, you know, Jesus saved us, not merely from unhappiness or dysfunction or failure in life. No, no, he he came to save us from something greater, the comprehensive reign of death because of sin. Sin. And a reign that holds us in bondage through fear. See, I look at my uncle's life, and I say, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? See, and that's the promise to the Christian. Those who have placed their faith in Christ and receive the free gift of his righteousness we could look death in the face and confidently say, you have no victory here. And it affords us a right standing with God through our relationship with Christ. And as we enter the majestic halls of heaven, invited to the banquet table, the marriage supper of the Lamb, it ensures us that we not only have this life, but we have life eternal, and that it shines brightly and abundantly and relationally, and purposefully in God's eternal kingdom. And that's our hope as, as Christians. And here in verse 17, therefore, he, made, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiations for the sins of the people. See, here the author repeats what he said in verse 14, that Jesus became human. And here in verse 17, hey, Jesus became human. He's saying it twice. In verse 17, he's emphasizing that he was fully and completely human in all his physical attributes. And here in 17, he became human so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. So that he shares in all human experiences. Yet he remained without sin, Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So because he is perfectly innocent and he bears our punishment and our guilt, he could fully relate to us as well. Jesus, being fully human, can fully relate to his people. And the interesting thing about this passage is Jesus identifies as human, as being human. It's the second reason why he became human. So first was that he came to die. Second, to become high priest, our high priest. And this is the first time that Jesus is called high priest in the Bible. And the only time in the Bible that the high priest is described as merciful See, because in the Old Testament, the high priest couldn't be merciful. It wasn't him forgiving sins. And he had to sacrifice, uh, make a sacrifice for his own sins. So to restate the verse, Jesus became human to become high priest in order to make propitiation, thereby destroying the power of death through the forgiveness of sins. And listen to R.A. Stewart's a quote here out of his book, The Sinless High Priest, and I quote, how can sinners approach the holiness of God either personally or through a representative? They can come to him with confidence only if they have removed their sin. And this above all else makes Jesus so incomparable, a high priest and representative to his people. Not only is he sinless himself and therefore entitled to enter the presence of God on his own account, but he has dealt effectively with his people's sins. And can therefore enter the presence of God by his own account. The purpose of his incarnation, his birth, was that through his death, he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Due in effective reality that the sacrificial ritual of the Old Testament times could only do in token form. A high priest who has actually, and not merely in symbolism, removed his people's sins. And therewith the barrier which sins erected between themselves and God. He is a high priest worth having. End quote. So, through his experience of suffering and temptation, he is perfectly sympathetic and merciful to his people. And God's mercy is his kindness towards those in misery and distress. And God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he's loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ. And even Peter says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You know, you could rack your brain all day trying to find a story or illustration, illustrating the mercy of God, but thankfully, one's already been written for us. Luke 18, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector some of you are familiar with that story. The Pharisee there boasting about his superior, the moral superiority, listing out his spiritual disciplines and saying, "I'm glad I'm not like other men, especially like that one, the tax collector." And the tax collector there kneeling, unable to li- even lift his eyes to the heaven, pounding his chest, saying, "God, have mercy on me, a sinner." and he left justified. It's a picture of our salvation. It's mercy that relieves suffering. He's not only a merciful high priest, but he's a faithful high priest, remaining faithful to God through temptation and suffering, fulfilling the office of high priest. Therefore, his quality of character, he's trustworthy, and we could completely trust him, that he'll fulfill his role as high priest, that he has made propitiation for us, that the wrath of God has stayed and we, have no, longer, we no longer fear death. And because he is faithful, we can remain faithful. Hebrews 10.23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who is promised is faithful. So what are the implications of being liberated from this type of fear? means we are free to worship with unadulterated joy. If this is truly something we are free from, if it's truly the king of terror, death itself, if, if we don't have to fear that, let us rejoice. Let us sing. Let us proclaim his name, not worrying about the repercussions. Boldly and confidently, joyously, let us worship. We don't have to care about what other people think, because there's complete security in who we have in Christ. We don't have to look to earn other people's approval. And through this freedom, Paul tells the Galatians, not to use our liberty as an opportunity of the flesh, but through love, serve one another. Serve one another. In view of Christ's mercy and faithfulness, we sacrifice our own comfort to relieve the suffering of others. Sure, we do this to those we love, but also, according to the world, people we bear no obligation to. But as we look at the cross, we we have a tremendous obligation. So why then would you adopt a child? Why would you adopt a child and and invite potential hardship and and disrupt your life? Oh, it's because I've received the mercy of God. Why would you do foster care? Why would you do foster care and and have people come in and out of your home and go through this emotional roller coaster and and have to give give yourself constantly for people who may or may not appreciate what you do? Oh, because he's rich in mercy and I could be generous as I extend that same mercy to others. Why serve at food bank on a Friday afternoon? I just work this whole week, hard day. I don't go home, kick up my feet, watch TV. Well, no, because when we walk people through that line, when we pray for those people, we have to share the gospel with the people because this is the greatest news in human history. And that's how we live that life. And that's how we live that news. So then... The terror of Christ the terror of death has been removed by the the death of Christ, and his exaltation to the Father's right hand as the high priest confirms that victory. And the fear of death has become irrelevant and the power of the devil impotent. See, the limitless Lord of the universe took on limitations to free us. The infinite became an infant for our sake. And no amount of self-initiative or hard work or self-confidence could achieve that. We needed someone greater than ourselves, someone outside ourselves to come into our experience, to help guide us, teach us, love us, and rescue us. We have that opportunity to acknowledge, just like the Apostle Peter that says, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And as Jesus told Peter, and on this rock I shall build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail. The gates of hell shall not prevail. Who's playing offense here? I always feel like we're on the defensive. No, Jesus is going to the gates of hell and kicking them down. See, through his death, Jesus stormed the gates of our prison and liberated us, ripping the keys of our enslavement from the devil and setting us on a path of righteousness and life abundant and life eternal. He took the keys of death and Hades, and he wasn't polite about it. He took down the strong man and he plundered his goods. So what shall we say to any of these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who is it that brings a charge against God's elect? The devil? The accuser? No. He has no power. He has no power. It is God who justifies. Who is it that condemns? It's Christ Jesus who died, and more than that, he was raised. Raised far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but the age to come. And he sits at the right hand of God, who makes intercessions on our behalf as a merciful and faithful high priest. So what shall separate us from the love of God? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, sword, danger? No, no. None of these things, none of these things, not death itself. In all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus was born to deliver us from the fear of death and free us to live a fearless life full of mercy and faithfulness. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for who you are and sending your son. We pray that we would live out this truth in mercy and faithfulness, not wavering at the sacrifice you've already made. And we pray in the name of the one who has delivered us from death. Amen.